Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And that's interesting that the Gospels highlight that Christ was crucified at twilight also. Verse 7 says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it, raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening." For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. You know, as we look back in our nation, we look back on our our founding fathers, and, and I like to do that from time to time, especially it comes around towards 4th of July. It's a time for us where we can look back at our beginning. And what was their beginning as they started this nation is, of course, our beginning because we're part of that nation. Well, we get to experience the same thing as we look at this because as we look back at Israel and they're being delivered out of the nation of Egypt, it is a picture. It points forward to something so much clearer. See, God would send Moses to be the deliverer and to deliver Israel out of the nation of Egypt. And Moses is that one that pictures, or one of the ones that picture Christ. In fact, Moses would tell the Israelites that one day God would send another prophet like unto me. 
our Savior, this one that's a greater Moses, that Moses' life pointed toward, he saves us not just from Egypt, from, from sin. So as we look at the salvation of Israel in this time for their deliverance, actually what we're doing is we're looking at ours. As we look at their deliverer, we're, looking at, we're seeing our deliverer. We're seeing a blueprint being laid out before us. Hebrews looks back at these different events and says that these things are they're copies of the real thing. They're shadows of the real thing. They're, they're patterns of the real thing. Jesus Christ himself, of course, being the real thing. So as we look at the salvation of Israel, we get to see things about our own salvation, about our own deliverance. So as we consider that this morning, I want to focus on six of them. The first thing we see is that salvation is provided. Salvation is not something you achieve. It's not something you accomplish. Salvation is just provided for us. But we notice all the activity at this point is coming from God. The salvation that we're seeing, God is the one doing it. God tells Moses, you guys just hunker in. You guys just go into the house and you stay there. God is accomplishing it. He's bringing the culmination of it. We've, we've seen nine plagues up to this point that he's carried out against Pharaoh. And this is the one. In fact, I wrestled with it a little bit this week thinking through. Did the other nine plagues, how do we look at that? Did the other plagues not accomplish what only the death of the firstborn can accomplish? Because that would have gospel ramifications. Or the other nine were just building up to the final one that would finally take care of it. I think that's probably it. That's probably the way to look at it. At any rate, God is doing all this. In fact, he's been doing things through all these plagues that nobody else can do. The magicians tried to mirror. The, they mirrored the first couple of them. Then after that, they were lost. And you know what? It's the same thing is true with our salvation. You cannot achieve it. You cannot accomplish it yourself. It has to be provided for you. This week in our Bible study time, that I do a weekly Bible study at the nursing home. And during the time there, one of the people that was participating in the Bible story got talking about something. And he said, well, you know, we just need to, we need to do as good as we can. We need to be the best people that we can be so that we can, so we can be the right kind of people so that then we can go to heaven. Isn't that right? I said, absolutely not. And they're like, what? I said, the whole point of the Bible is that we can't. The list of rules, the Ten Commandments, we can't keep them. I was listening to a, a Timothy Keller this week, and he pointed out, you, everybody has this list in their own head. If, if you can make your own list of how people ought to treat you, all the different ways people ought to treat you, he says, if you say, lie, at the end of your life, if you line your life up with your own list of rules, you'll find that you couldn't even keep your own rules. And you made them. You see, what we need is a Savior. What we need is a deliverer. We don't need a self-help book. We don't need just some tips to live by. We don't need some, some goals that if you can accomplish these things, if New Year's doesn't teach you that every single year, then I don't know what it's going to take for us to learn. We get to the point where, you know what, I'm not even going to make a New Year's resolution because it's just one more thing to break. And I make it myself. That's just the way it is. We cannot accomplish it. We cannot do it on our own. And Titus tells us the same thing. In chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He saved us, not by any works of righteousness that we can do, but according to His own mercy. You see, that's where we're at. We're at the mercy of God. 
If he doesn't accomplish it for us, it doesn't get done because we will fail. You know, I was watching a video of a guy named Don Carson, and he kind of made this little story. He said, let's say during the Exodus, they have two different people. And these two different people are having a conversation. And the one person says to the other, says, you know what, I'm, I'm nervous about tonight. Aren't you nervous about tonight? And the other one says, no, I'm not nervous about tonight. Why, why would I be nervous about tonight? And he says, the destroyer is going to come through, and he's going to destroy all the firstborn in every house, all through the land of Egypt. Why wouldn't you be nervous? And the other guy says, well, haven't you done what Moses told you to do? Have you chosen the lamb? He killed the lamb and you put the blood on the doorposts. He says, yeah, I've done that. Are you going to go inside with your family and keep them inside for the night? Yeah. Are you going to eat the meal? Yeah. Are you going to burn up whatever's left over? Yeah. So what are you worried about? He's like, I don't know, man. It's just a lot of, it's just a serious thing. And then he says, the night comes and both of the people go into their homes with their families and they eat the meal. And in the end, which one of them dies? Neither of them. One of them had absolutely no fear. His faith was so strong that even with the destroyer coming through the neighborhood at night and checking all the doors, he said, i got blood on my doorpost, I'm fine. The other one's like, yeah, I've got the blood on my doorpost, but I, he's, he's not as strong in his faith. They're both saved. Why? Because they both had faith. One's faith was stronger than the other one. But you know what? Even the strength of your faith isn't what makes you saved. It's that lamb's blood on the doorpost that makes you saved. The point is that we can't accomplish it on our own. Our salvation is provided for us. All the way from the beginning of the book of Exodus, it has been the same thing. God has said, I am going to do this. I will 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 do this. The Israelites at time responded, it looked like, in faith and worship, and then turned right around to say, why are you doing this to us, to Moses? They struggled in their faith, but God was accomplishing it on their behalf. And that's the point. We've got to get to the point where we realize there's very little of this that depends upon us. Yes, we need to respond in faith to experience it. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. But it's God that is accomplishing this as salvation on our behalf. It's not something that we achieve. You know what? The rest of the religions of the world are all about achievement. 51 to the good. If you live a little bit more of your life to the good than you did to the bad, then, then you're in. Or, or maybe some of them aren't quite that easy, but they have all these achievements. So you climb this ladder to work your way up to God, to get acceptance to God. The Bible is completely different. Christianity is completely different. It's not about us getting up to God. It's about the fact that God came to us. He came down to us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, and accomplished our salvation for us. Well, not only is salvation provided, but notice also salvation is central. It's central to this message as we look at it here. As God is delivering Israel out of Egypt, he says this month is going to be the first of months for you. He's resetting their calendar. This month is the beginning of months for you. This is what your nation is going to revolve around. This is how you're going to keep track of your events that are going to happen through the year. It's supposed to be the same for us. What does our calendar revolve around? Christ. We mark time by B.C. and A.D., now, I know that there's people trying to change it. They want to call it B.C.E. and, and then C.E. for the time that we're in. The one that was before the common era and then what we're in right now called the common era. But you know what? The whole fact of the matter is, is that our calendar is set on Christ. Why? Because He's our King. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And B.C. stands for before Christ. And A.D. stands for Anandomini, which means in the year of our Lord. You see, before that, they always kept track by the kings. In such and such year of this king, of the reign of this king. 
and in such and such year of the reign of this king. But Israel's yearly calendar, when their, their months would cycle, would always start with this one thing, the Passover. Because that's the time of year that God delivered them out of the Egyptian bondage. But when we get up to Christ, we're going to mark our calendar with him. You see, he's center. And that's what he's to be for Israel. You know what? That's what he's supposed to be for us. I remember when I accepted Christ. In June 2nd, 1985, I put my faith in Christ. And I wrote that date in the front of my Bible. Because to me, that was the beginning of my life. Now, I know I lived before that. But that's the beginning of my eternal life. That's the beginning of my life with God. That's my spiritual birthday. I have a physical birthday that I celebrate every year with a little less enthusiasm every year. But, and then I have a spiritual birthday that I can celebrate with more enthusiasm every year because that one's not going to come to an end. That's what he's saying is that, look, this salvation should be central to your life. And we're going to see that more as we go on because when God gets out in the wilderness with the children of Israel and they're all living in tents, God's going to tell them, all right, now you're going to make me a tent because I'm going to dwell with you. And you know where he's going to put it? Right in the middle of the camp. He's going to say, this tribe needs to go this way for me and this tribe this way. And they're going to be all around him evenly. And God's tent's going to be right in the center of the lives of the, of the children of Israel. He is town square to them. What is he saying? I want to be right in the center of your life. He's saying the same thing to you and me. Jesus Christ doesn't want to be one priority on your life. One thing to check off your list for getting done each day as far as talking to him or listening to him or anything like that. He wants to be right smack in the center of everything that's going on in your life. So much so that he's saying in his Gospels, if I can't be there, I just don't really want to be anywhere, I guess. Christ is our Passover. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Now the context of this is, earlier in the chapter he's talking about some sin within the church. Some of the people within the church were committing heinous sins that he says, look, even the pagans aren't doing these things. And so he's, so he's telling them to kick those people out of the church with the hopes that it'll wake them up so that they'll repent and come back into the church. And that's exactly what happens if you read Second Corinthians. But in this, he says, you're boasting, because they were boasting about the fact that they could tolerate such sin in the church. They were so full of grace, but misunderstanding of grace. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now that's really cool what it says right there. If you look back at the Passover, they had to get all the leaven out of their house. You couldn't eat leaven for a week. In fact, if you did eat leaven in the week, you were kicked out of Israel. <laughs> Stiff penalty. Why? Leaven was a picture of sin. In fact, it tells us that a little farther down in there. He says, therefore, in verse 9, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So leaven represents malice, evil, sin in our lives. And he says, look, God's going to deliver you. Let's get the sin out of your lives. Let's deal with the sin. And so they had to get the leaven. They weren't allowed to add yeast or leaven into their bread. And the Apostle Paul looks at that and says, look, the point that he's making is in Christ... You are unleavened. That's an awesome thing. We are pure in Christ. Our sin is taken away in that Passover lamb. Christ is our Passover that dealt with our sin. So our sin is taken away by him. We are unleavened. Jesus used this same celebration with his disciples for the last time that he ate dinner with them. Right before he went to the cross. In Luke chapter 22 it says, 
And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. I find that interesting. Christ is going to the cross. He knows he's going to be sacrificed. He's going to go through that agonizing death. Before that happens, he's got to have this one meal with his disciples. He's had meals with these disciples, including Passover meals, for the last three and a half years. But he's determined that right before his death, that he is going to have this meal with his disciples. And he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, it's interesting with the way that a Passover meal would be observed. A leader would stand up and they would introduce the elements of the table. The elements of the table would be the wine and the bread and the lamb. And the leader would stand up and he would put meaning into the meal. I dare say that they ate wine, bread, and lamb pretty regularly. But this one was on purpose and it was significant. The father and the family would stand up, take the bread, and he would say, this is the bread of our affliction. And he would talk about how God delivered them out of Egypt. And he would use the elements at the table to describe what happened back at that very first Passover. Well, Jesus takes that role. He stands up and he takes the bread. And instead of saying, this is the bread of the affliction, he says, this is my body. Now, it's it's nothing mystical. He's going to make a memorial out of it. It's not like his... The bread was still a piece of bread. His body was still standing there before them. And then he takes a cup and he says, This cup is the blood that is shed for you. Now there's some confusion. Some people even have said, Well, maybe, maybe he had them get all the elements ready except for the lamb. Maybe he left out the lamb out of the meal because he is the lamb. And I just don't think that's true. I think there was the lamb because the gospel accounts, when, it, when the disciples come to Jesus and say, where do you want us to get the thing ready? They acknowledge that it's at the time where they needed to go get the lamb. So I think the lamb was there, but he doesn't mention it that's recorded for us because he is the lamb. Jesus led them through the meal. He's saying, I am your Passover. The Passover is the fact that God would pass over them. God was bringing judgment. He was bringing judgment on the Egyptians and all the gods of Egypt. And the way that he was doing it with this tenth and final plague was he was bringing judgment upon Pharaoh himself and on his household and all the households of Egypt that the firstborn son in every household would die. But he tells the Israelites, you clean all the leaven out of your house. You kill this lamb and you take the blood and you put it over the lintel, which is the headpiece above the door, and down the two doorposts on the sides. And then you get in and you stay inside. You know, realize what that's saying? If they come out of there, they're not protected. If they come out of the house with the blood on the doorpost, they're not protected. They'll be killed with the Egyptians. But he says, you stay inside. And God says, when I come, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The only way of salvation is the blood. They have to stay inside 
that building with the blood on the doorposts. They have to stay under the blood. You realize that's the only place of salvation for us is under the blood of Christ. That's where our salvation is. Salvation is not accomplishment on our part. It's not keeping a list of rules. It's not being good enough. It's not being religious enough. It's not being anything like that. It's about being under the blood. I remember I, I led a coworker to Christ one time just talking about the Passover because it draws such a vivid picture right at the center of God's story is this story, the innocent dying for the guilty. We've seen it over and over and over again. We have this Passover sacrifice that is offered up for them, and the salvation is found only in that blood of the Lamb. And that's to be the central part of our lives as we worship God. Well, also, we find that salvation is narrow. The only warning went to the Israelites, to God's chosen people. The Egyptians did not get the warning on this plague. We also see that later on in the passage... When you get to the end of chapter 12, God tells Moses that this is to be a perpetual feast for them every year. But he says, if you've got slaves and other people that are living among you that have been circumcised, they are welcome to attend. They can celebrate it with you. They're part of you. He says, but if you have foreigners that are living among you that have not been circumcised, have not put their faith in God, they're not walking in the promises, then this feast is not for them. It's exclusive in that sense. And that's the thing. Salvation is narrow. Salvation is found in Christ alone. There's no other place to find salvation. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus Christ. Jesus himself would state that in John 14:6. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And I think of Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells them to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Salvation is found only inside that blood-covered doorway. It's found only in the Passover lamb. It's found only in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is narrow. It's broad in that it's open to everybody. But it's narrow as far as the way. You know, so many people think that, oh, you know, that's true for you, but I'm going to get there on my own. I'm going to get there this other way. You are not. I've heard some people say all the different religions of the world are like a whole bunch of runways coming into the same airport, coming into God. Absolutely not. And one person heads east and one person heads west in our country. And you're trying to get to uh, Washington, D.C. Only one of you is going to make it. The one that headed east. The way of salvation, God says, is very clear. He's provided his own son and that is it. Period. Now, also we see that salvation is accomplished through sacrifice, as we've already been talking about. Jesus Christ is that Passover lamb. And this isn't anything new. Even at this place toward the beginning of the Bible, this isn't new. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned against God and they were guilty before God, what did God use to cover their guilt and their nakedness? An innocent animal died and the skins used to cover Adam and Eve. They tried to cover it themselves through fig leaves and stuff. Uh, Inappropriate. It doesn't work. God takes the innocent life, an innocent bloody sacrifice, and the clothing comes from that. And from that, He covers their sin and their nakedness. But then also, shortly after that, we see Cain and Abel. They both offer a sacrifice. 
Abel from the fruit of the ground, but he grew himself, bringing it before God. And God rejected that sacrifice, and he took Abel's sacrifice, which was what? A lamb from the flock. The best from the flock. We also see it with Noah when we get to the flood, and God says, I'm going to destroy the whole world, but there's only one way of salvation, and that's through the ark. And when Noah gets lands on the other end of it, what's the first thing he does? Offer sacrifice. And then we see, after the people are spread out at the Tower of Babel, what is the salvation from that? God chooses one person, Abraham. And then what does Abraham do? God calls him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And Abraham obeys, but God stops him short. But God's showing a picture that God would one day offer his own son as a sacrifice. But in Abraham's time, the ram got to die instead that God had stuck in the thicket. You see, over and over and over, we see down through here, one, that God's salvation is narrow. It only comes through the ark. It only comes through Moses leaving uh, Egypt. It only comes through the, the sacrifice that, that Abel offered. You see that his salvation is narrow, but we also see that salvation is accomplished through sacrifice. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is through that bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we have forgiveness of sins and no other way. First Peter chapter 1 in verses 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. What do we see in this passage that we're looking through in Exodus? That they were to take a lamb and it was to be without blemish, without spot. It's supposed to be a perfect lamb. In fact, I find it interesting. He says you're supposed to pick the lamb on the 10th of the month. You're not going to sacrifice it till the 14th of the month. Why? So that you can make sure it's healthy. It's got to be a perfect sacrifice. Well, Jesus Christ was tempted for 40 days to prove that he's the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Well, also we see that salvation is experienced through faith. What do the people have to do? Well, as we said, God was accomplishing it all. God was the one delivering them. But they had to experience it through faith. It's through believing. Because if they believe, then they're going to do what God said. They're going to take the lamb, kill it, put the blood on the doorpost, go inside and eat it. Stay put for the night. And they believed. And because they believed, they were saved. God said, you better stay in the house. If you don't believe, then you're probably not going to stay in the house. If you don't believe, you're not going to put the blood on the doorpost. How do we experience salvation the same way it says in Ephesians chapter 2? For by grace are you saved through faith. It's through simple faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, that we experience this salvation. And then lastly, we see that salvation is experienced and celebrated in community. You know, a lot of times we think of our salvation as being personal, and it is personal. A lot of times we think of our salvation as being intimate and between us and God, and it is between you and God. But you know what? It's also communal. You know, I often hear people make this statement. In fact, I might have even made it myself. That if, that if you were the only one, Christ would have died for you. But you know what? I've often thought about that statement and thought, what an irrelevant statement. You want to know why? Because the fact of the matter is, one, I don't know that there's any place in the Bible that tells you that, that says that. But two is, you're not the only one. So it doesn't really matter. You're not the only one that exists, and you're not the only one that God is saving. In fact, you're not getting saved any different way than any of the rest of us are getting saved. We're all getting saved through that one narrow way, which is faith in Jesus Christ. And you know what? Constantly through the Bible, Old Testament and New, God 
pulls his people together to experience it as a community, not just as an individual. In our Western way of thinking, we're very individualistic in our culture, probably more individualistic than any other culture that has come behind us or even is maybe on the face of the earth right now. You get into your Asian cultures and stuff like that, they're very much more communal thinking than they are individualistic. And you know it was into a very communal type of a culture that all these things happened. And if you look through the Bible, we are constantly called to experience our salvation and celebrate our salvation together. In fact, a lot of the commands that are given to us in the New Testament and Old can't even be carried out just as one person. It takes other people in the room to be able to carry out those commands. He didn't take every person and have them get a lamb and go over their little quiet spot. What does he do? He takes the family, stay together. He says, if your family's not big enough to eat a sheep, go to the neighbors. You guys, pull it up together. Have a night together with the neighbors and celebrate it together. But you see, our faith is not just between us and God. Or maybe I should say it is. It's also between us and God. It's meant to be experienced together. 